Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you stories that matter, not only in the world of business and finance, but also covering stories in science, technology, climate change and more. Find out more at ft.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm podcast editor at New Scientist. I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist news editor. As usual now, we're all recording remotely. Joining me and Penny in the virtual pod today is New Scientist journalist Graham Lawton. And coming up too, we've got epidemiologist Professor Crystal Donnelly from Imperial College London, Crystal is Associate Director of the MRC Centre for Global Infectious Disease Analysis. That's the group that's been advising the UK government on the response to the coronavirus. We're going to hear from Crystal in a moment, and we're also doing our regular science roundup, also known as an attempt to distract you from the horrors of coronavirus by telling you about some of the other non-COVID stuff going on. Yes, because science doesn't stop for the lockdown, or at least not entirely anyway. Right. But first, Penny, you're going to do your latest roundup of what's going on with the pandemic. Right. So as of this morning, the 26th of March, there have been over 470,000 confirmed cases worldwide. But numbers are shooting up so quickly now that this number is very likely to be much higher by the time that you actually hear this. It's also worth remembering that different countries have different testing strategies and the real number of COVID-19 cases worldwide will be much, much higher than the confirmed total. There have been over 21,000 deaths from COVID-19 and both Italy and Spain now have higher death tolls than China. Over the past few weeks, it's been Europe that's really started pulling attention on the pandemic. But the epidemic has really started to kick off now in the US. And there's a feeling that the global epidemic will soon be centred on the US, which now has the third highest number of confirmed cases worldwide behind China and Italy. Graham, we're due to get some tests soon in the UK. We've just heard news that there's a cheap home test coming. What do we know about that? Well, existing tests look for the genetic material of the virus from nose and throat swabs. And that's useful because it tells you whether you've got the virus, but it's not everything that you need to know. Uh, What you really need to know to be able to start um, living your normal life again is whether you've had the virus and recovered from it. And that means looking for antibodies uh, to the virus from blood. And these are the so-called serological tests that you may have heard about. 
And I think what you're talking about is this uh, story that there are new testing kits will soon be available to millions of people in the UK. Uh, they're a fingerprint test, so it's blood, which can only mean an antibody or serological test. So that's really good news because we, what we need to know is how many people not just have the virus but have had the virus. But there is a health warning on that because having recovered from the virus doesn't necessarily mean that you're non-contagious. We know that people shed virus for up to two weeks after becoming symptom-free. Just as a note of caution, one of the tests that the UK government has been talking about a lot this week, um, at the time that we're recording this, it still hasn't actually been validated in the UK yet. Um, Those tests are imminent, but until we actually know that it has a very high level of accuracy and reliability, we don't actually know that it will be usable. Okay, let's bring in our guest now, Professor Crystal Donnelly from Imperial College London. Crystal, thanks so much for coming on the show. How's lockdown for you at the moment? Uh, Okay, I'm actually at... University of Oxford as well. So I live in Oxford. So I'm here with my husband, an academic and two kids all sharing the same house. How old are the kids? Uh, They're 13 and 16. So they're pretty much just getting on with it. The school's been really good about giving them things to do. Okay, so you've been involved in the latest report, the latest COVID-19 report. Uh, It's a summary of what we've learned about the disease from China. Uh, Can you give us a couple of take home points from it? Well, there were rather extreme measures. Um, I say that because they're outside of our normal life experience, but they were really needed to lock down China in the affected areas. So that is, you know, keeping people at home, um, stopping non-essential work and having people only come out for the essentials. And so those were critical in bringing what was an increasing epidemic and really alarming numbers of cases and deaths down to a decreasing epidemic. And they even had some days recently with no cases that they attributed to local transmission. So the key now is to see whether or not they can try to have an exit strategy of getting out of this and you know, let some social functions at least uh, come back to a little bit closer to normal. And how different were the Chinese measures from the kinds of social distancing measures that are being implemented in the UK now? Uh, Well, there's, there were issues of them not being optional. So we are encouraged to stay at home, to go out for, you know, sort of exercise once a day. Uh, That's allowed, but staying at a distance. Um, But my understanding is there that they weren't even allowed to do that. It was one person per household over a certain time could come out for food and otherwise had to stay inside. So, of course, those would be particularly challenging for people who, you know, might be in a small flat in a tower block, but they really needed to clamp down on that transmission. But a key difference as well is that they have a phone app um, that gives an indication of whether or not the person has been exposed or sort of in the vicinity of um, someone where they might have been at risk of transmission. So they're using that to start to allow people to move around more. And so my understanding is that that, say I had my app and it would have by default a green um, signal saying that, you know, and that could be checked, for example, when I went into the equivalent of the tube or other public transport, show that to somebody and they'd see that I had green. So there was no indication I was infected. However, if I had was then in close vicinity to someone who was subsequently found to have a COVID-19, the analysis of the uh, mobile phone data would allow them to then signal across the area everybody who was then judged to be at risk. They would get a red signal. That would mean they should go home and isolate until they could be tested and found negative. So although it's different than we've ever imagined in terms of an authority having data on where 
people moved, it has allowed them to highlight the people at greatest risk. And it appears that they're using that to to allow people who do have these green signals to move around more. So to what extent then um, was it that social distancing that really helped um, uh, contain the disease or slow it down? And to what extent was it that sort of level of testing? Because in the UK, we're just not doing that testing of anyone who might possibly have it. Well, it's a combination of those things. If you're able to lock everyone down and have them socially distanced, the testing is, is not so critical because you're not having, you know, you're telling everyone to stay in. But it's a matter of balancing those things. Obviously, when you have less test capacity, then you're more reliant on social distancing. But the indications that we've seen so far is is that you'll need both. And the important reason for that is because people, they can transmit before they become symptomatic. So even if we had lots of tests, unless you're going to have everybody test themselves first thing in the morning as they get up, you're going to have the possibility of people transmitting before they become symptomatic. And so therefore, we need to have social distancing to prevent transmission um, before it starts. I mean, my sons were asking me about this and, well, you know, they're not infected. They don't have the symptoms. It's, well, we should assume in our interactions that we're infected and alternatively that they're infected and we don't want transmission to go either way. One of the things we keep hearing about social distancing is that it buys us time. Uh, but there's this uh, a concern that when China starts removing some of the restrictions in Hubei and Wuhan, uh, there'll be a, a second peak or it will start s- circulating again. Uh, what kind of measures or exit strategy would be needed at that point? Uh, well, I've mentioned already the uh, phone app that they have. So trying to identify those at risk most quickly. So that's a sort of automated version of contact tracing. Um, But it's critical in the difference is that even if I have a very good memory and could write down for you the names of all the people I'd come into contact with in the past week or something, if I had onset or even two weeks, there would inevitably be in normal life people that I came into close contact with that I couldn't name. I didn't know for some reason. And so using this phone app allows those people to be identified. The initial indication is that some additional movement is coming back into the affected areas in China and without the case numbers responding in kind, at least not at this point. So somebody said to me, oh, that's great news. It will be great news if it's sustained. Let's go for cautiously optimistic at this point. But of course, they're going to have to be very careful because even if they have managed to really stifle transmission locally, of course, in the opposite way that it started, they now have issues of people coming in with infection acquired elsewhere. And, you know, that's obviously an issue for the people who traveled, but also those that come into contact with them. So they'll have to be extra careful on that. And so the numbers, I don't have complete information on that, but there are certainly reports that of the recent cases they've been reporting, the majority of them have been people who they believe acquired the infection elsewhere. Uh, Crystal, As you said, the UK has been advising social distancing rather than enforcing it like in China. And so what sort of difference will this advice will have made? Will will the stricter measures that we've now got have come too late to flatten the curve enough? There's not really a too late in this because you, you know, you can flatten the curve at any stage as you're growing up. You can make it more flat. I mean, you know, obviously we'd like to have it flat at zero, uh, but we're not going to manage that. But we need because it needs to be a balance of the social functions that we need. People still need to go out um, and get the medicine and the foods that we need. We still need fire and police and um, all these other essential services. So there will need to be some movement of people around. 
And it's a, a matter of getting the balance right. Additional measures had to be brought in because people didn't adhere as well as the government hoped to the guidance initially um, to stay home wherever possible. And so it'll just be a balance between you know, how much people cooperate willingly and how much they need to be guided in a more directed way. Right. So any idea when we might know if this policy is working in the UK? It should become apparent relatively soon. The difficulty is that with the changing in testing and the seeing changes over time, it's difficult to look at what we call the time series. So the number of new cases each day. Obviously, when you look at that, you're hoping to see the case numbers go down rather than go up. Uh, but because those depend on testing, you could suddenly, if you rolled out a lot more tests tomorrow, made them available to everybody in the country and said, test away, then we'd see a big jump in the number of cases. Now, that would be a good thing from the point of view of identifying them and providing extra um, controls around them. But it would look on the face of it like suddenly we had a lot more transmission. So surveillance is important in this. And so what we're going on in looking at the the best indicator we have at present of you know what transmission trends have been is to actually look at the deaths because we believe that the um, counting of deaths attributed to COVID-19 is going to be more complete than the cases. Uh, but then it does take some time from trans- reduced transmission to lead to reduced cases to lead to fewer deaths. But we can get an we will be able to get an indication by looking at other European countries. Um, that brought in controls earlier, Italy being the most prominent example, and see what the impact of their measures are. So when might we know if we do need stricter social distancing? Because one thing that we've been talking a lot about in the UK at the moment is we're being advised to work from home if we can. So plenty of people are still going to work because their jobs don't easily work from home or their businesses haven't told them that they can stay at home. So um, I know there's some concern about that. At what point might we need a full lockdown, more like, um, it's unlikely we'd have something on the scale of, of Wuhan, I would imagine, but more like what we've seen in Lombardy in Italy? That's obviously, it's going to be a difficult policy call because you have these important trade-offs. But I think that there will be careful monitoring, looking, for example, at the number of people coming into ICUs. So that's not a number that is, you know, systematically reported in the way that, you know, we don't get daily updates on that. But that will be carefully monitored and the government will be looking to ensure that, that we're not getting into a situation where we're likely to exceed capacity anytime soon. And is that the kind of measure then that would also indicate when we can think about relaxing the measures we've currently got in the UK? That's quite a a ways off. Obviously, you know, the government would prefer nobody coming into ICU uh, with COVID-19, but there, there may be the possibility that they can look at local trends then to see if we have evidence of reduced transmission locally. But obviously, you know, you don't want to end up with then releasing things and having the transmission go back. And hopefully um, additional tests will will be available that will help us inform this uh, release. But also there's a possibility, I mean, you know, what's really important as well is to think of having tests for antibodies. This is a the immune response to having recovered and fought off the virus. Because if you can identify people who have successfully recovered from the virus, then they should be at least in the short to medium term, hopefully even the long term, uh, immune from new infection. And then you would be able to identify those as people who could move around in 
if not complete, then quite relative safety. Can we talk a bit about the US situation? You know, we know that they're a little bit behind us on the curve at the moment. Is it too late now? I mean, you've just said, actually, it's not too, it's never too late to flatten the curve. But what needs to be done in the US? Like China, the US is a huge country. So, um, you know, there, there probably isn't one thing that needs to be done everywhere. And there, you know, there are problems that have been highlighted in New York City, for example, um, where the case number is going up quite quickly. And so it's going to be a matter of, of the same sort of social distancing. But obviously the measures that would need to be taken will be very different in their, their feel and experience in New York City versus where I'm originally from, which is northern Indiana. So it's going to have to be adjusted to the local circumstance because it's going to be quite hard in a city like New York to, for people to be social distanced and yet get the social needs that they, they have met. Right. Just one other thing. On Wednesday, we heard that uh, from Neil Ferguson, also at Imperial, that the UK should now be able to cope. How are we able to say to make that prediction, given the, the uncertainty that's still swirling around? Well, I think that he yes, expressed some confidence in it, not absolute. Uh, mm. It's a matter of, of balancing out what appear to be the trends in people coming through into ICUs and what the plans are to expand capacity, because I'm sure that you heard about the plans for this NHS Nightingale Hospital and you know, with an original capacity that will be set up and then the possibility for later expansion. So it's something right. that's being very closely monitored by a number of teams across the government to try and ensure that there are, is the capacity that's needed. And today there was the announcement of a, a supplier of ventilators being identified. So capacity is being ramped up. And then it's going to be carefully managed as much as possible to get those things in place. And it's not just the ventilators, but you also need the staff to be able to monitor the patients and monitor all the machines that are needed. So everyone's working as hard as they can to protect the NHS. But we all need to do our bit to make sure that we not just wash our hands, but stay at home as much as possible. Right. What's your feeling about it, your sort of gut feeling about this situation? I've got quite a knot in my stomach, but I've uh, had that since the middle of January, so it's not likely to go away anytime soon. All right. Anything else you'd like to tell us? There's a key thing, which is obviously we're worried about our uh, physical health. And, you know, as I said, I would encourage everybody to stay home as much as, as much as possible and to keep social distancing as indicated is necessary. But there's the mental health component as well. And so one of the things that, you know, people can do, it, I obviously have plenty of work to be done, but there are people who, of course, aren't working directly in the response if they're not involved in the NHS or vital services and may feel frustrated and powerless. And so you know, there's been a number of things, both locally and nationally set up, where people can volunteer to help others. So if you're in an extra vulnerable group, obviously... You want to stay home and as shielded as possible, but there's still the phone and it's a, you know, an opportunity to connect with other people and particularly those most vulnerable, you know, may be isolated for some time. So reaching out to people is always a good thing. That's great advice. Okay, Crystal, look, we'll let you go now. Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast today. Thank you very much indeed. That's our sci-fi alert, which sounds when we report a story that's already been featured in some way in science fiction. Rowan, what is it this week? 
Uh, this week, I'm really glad we've got Graham here because it's about lab-grown meat, which was what Graham was talking about a few weeks ago on the podcast. We heard then that one of the problems with growing meat is that we can grow the muscle cells quite easily, but we can't very well grow the associated tissues, the fat and connective tissue, that give meat its flavour and texture. But now some Israeli scientists have found a way to grow beef cells on an edible scaffold so they can grow the meat in three dimensions and seed the culture with other kinds of cells from beef. And this gives their lab-grown meat what they call enhanced meat-like texture, which sounds very delicious. Um, the authors say this method could be scaled up and could generate new protein sources for humans and help reduce reliance on animal agriculture and the associated impact on climate change. The sci-fi link is a bit of a stretch, but you'll forgive me. It's a, The sci-fi link is the cow in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that's been bred to be happy to be killed and eaten. And I mentioned that the work was being done in Israel. And the other thing that occurred to me was whether or not lab-grown meat is kosher. Uh, especially whether lab-grown pork is kosher. So I looked into this and it turns out that most rabbis consider lab-grown meat to be kosher if the animal the cells come from initially is kosher. So a beef burger grown in a lab is okay, but a pork sausage is not. Time out. We want to tell you a bit more about our sponsor, The Financial Times. We've told you all about the scientific and medical developments relating to the coronavirus. But as we're very quickly learning, this is affecting all areas of life. The FT is doing an important job of making sense of what's currently happening to business, markets and industry. As well as providing handy guides on how to homeschool your children, there's stories about how the virus will impact house prices. And one of my favourites this week, how one man created a pub out of his garden shed during the lockdown. Good idea for all of us there. Plus, like us, the FT have their own suite of podcasts. A new episode of their show, The Rackman Review, came out this week and explores how citizens around the world are reacting to being in self-isolation. There's a lot of misinformation swirling around out there, so as one of the world's most trusted news organisations, the FT is an important addition to your daily reading. Join the debate at ft.com. Graham, you've written this week's magazine cover story on the immune system. It's quite timely since there's a lot of advice in there on how you can boost your immune system. What did you find out? There is a lot of advice doing the rounds about boosting your immune system for obvious reasons. But uh, in my opinion, most of it is kind of lacking in scientific rigour. It's essentially kind of stating the bleeding obvious advice that doesn't differ very much from the usual health messages to kind of eat well, sleep well, exercise more, etc. And these are valid pieces of advice, but what you rarely hear is why they are valid. And so in some ways they're easy to dismiss as the kind of usual nanny state, finger wagging stuff. Uh, But there is some really good science underpinning all of this. And this is where the new science of immunological age or image comes in. Uh, And that's helpful because it also tells us some other things that go beyond the sort of eat, sleep, exercise message. So we know that the immune system becomes increasingly weak and dysfunctional as we get older. And this is a process called immunosenescence. uh, And gerontologists regard this as one of the leading underlying causes of late life morbidity or mortality, which are fancy words for being ill and dying. If you're uh, obviously, if your immune system doesn't work properly, you can't fight infections off, and this is the basic reason why elderly people are more at risk of falling seriously ill and dying from COVID 19, and that also applies to other infections such as flu. And immunosenescence is interesting because it follows this predictable path in all humans through their lifespan, 
but the rate at which it progresses varies from person to person, largely dependent on lifestyle factors. Right, so they're the usual things like smoking or doing exercise or getting enough sleep. Yes, so the way that you live your life is essentially what determines your age, your immunological age, which is the biological age, I said, of your immune system. Now, it's not the same as chronological age, the number of years you've lived for. So one of the researchers who developed this uh, amazing piece of science told me that a 60-year-old can have an immune age of up to plus or minus 20 years of their chronological age. So maybe as young and vigorous as that of a 40-year-old or as old and knackered as an 80-year-old. And as I said, it depends largely on lifestyle factors, which is where the advice to eat well, exercise well and so on actually comes from. Uh, And we also know that obesity and smoking definitely push your immune age in the wrong direction. But the really good news is, uh, and this is what my story this week is about, is that your immune age can go down as well as up. And it's never too late to start trying to push it down. Right. Just like flattening the curve. But uh, that's what I was going to ask. So if uh, if you might have overdone it a bit in the past, can you undo the damage you've done? Uh, Just asking for a friend here. I mean, yes, it appears that it is uh, possible to flatten your own curve to push your immune age down if you don't already now would be a really good time to take up exercise and healthy living generally so do you know what your immunological age is graham Uh, right now this is lab science there isn't a commercial test available but the scientists are developing one and i'm first in the queue to get it done when it comes out but i know that my biological age uh, is significantly younger than my chronological age i'm 50 years old but my biological age is 37 and the researchers say that biological age and immune age are correlated they're not exactly the same so if i had it done i would kind of expect to be maybe 10 years younger immunologically than my body is nice okay well we'll definitely talk about that when you find out more about it because uh, I want to know about more about this test and how they do the measurement. So they're essentially looking at various measures of immune function using a kind of what they call a multi-omics approach. So they look at proteins, they look at gene expression, they look at all the kind of measurements that have been developed recently to understand how your body is working. They put it all together and kind of crunch the data and out pops a number at the end that is essentially your immune age. Obviously the immune system is very, very complex. Uh, it's the second most complicated system in your body after your brain. But very briefly, it has this thing called the innate arm and the adaptive arm. Uh, The innate arm is the general sort of non-specific rapid response. It's like a border patrol. It kind of keeps an eye out for invaders uh, and attacks and tries to smother them before they get in. And then you also have the adaptive arm, which is slower but more targeted. This is the B cells, the T cells the antibodies, all those kind of familiar immune system terms. And both of these suffer from immunosenescence. And what my story talks about is how you can change your lifestyle to try and boost both arms of the immune system. The adaptive immune system particularly ages quite rapidly as you get into your 60s. At this point, I think we need a health warning. Uh, These are general population-level observations. They're not individualised advice. We're not doctors. I'm not telling you to do any of this stuff. What the right. aim is, is for you to understand your own immune system and th- understand things that you might be able to do to improve it. None of the things I'm going to tell you are going to make it worse. Uh, but please, you know, be aware that this is not individualised health advice. You need to get that from a doctor. Right, right. So one of the most important things is that uh, in the innate immune system is a, a group of white blood cells called neutrophils. And these patrol around in your blood. And when they detect an invader, they barrel towards it and they attack and they kill it. Uh, this is mostly for bacteria. Now, we know that this system goes really badly wrong as you get old. Neutrophils have this thing called chemotaxis, where they're very good at finding an invader and barreling towards it very accurately. That's what the immune system's sat-nav, essentially. But that sat-nav goes wrong as we get older. 
The neutrophils kind of blunder around in your tissues, causing inflammation and not attacking the target very well. Now, one of the things that's been discovered recently is that statins, uh, those cholesterol-lowering drugs that people take for that reason, are actually really good at rejuvenating neutrophils. Now, we don't know exactly why that might be, but there is a clinical trial going on of statins in people who come into hospital with upper respiratory tract infections. Sounds familiar? And it may well be that soon enough statins will become a recognised medicine for immunorejuvenation. Uh, again, it's too early to recommend that you should take statins. But if you're on them already, you have a degree of protection. We know from hospital data that people who are already taking statins, if they come into hospital with flu, they're much less likely to die than people who are not on statins. Don't go and buy statins over the counter. Go to your doctor, get your cholesterol tested. If your doctor prescribes you statins, then you're probably safe to take them, but they do have recognised side effects, so be careful. Now, I can't guarantee that any of these will stop you getting ill this time, but there's broad agreement that COVID-19 is not going to be the last emerging virus to challenge our naive immune systems. So if you want to live a long and healthy life, I really recommend that you look after your immune system. Uh, Now, Penny, it's time for Life Form of the Week. What have you got for us? Now, this may sound a little mundane, but this week I'm giving you a mouse. Uh, However, this is not just any mouse. This is the yellow-rumped, leaf-eared mouse. And it's a strong candidate, I would argue, for the most hardcore mammal on the planet. Um, This mouse lives at the summit of a volcano in the Andes that rises 6,739 metres above sea level. So, yeah, that's pretty high. Uh, it's not quite the death zone. But, uh, well, that's above 8,000 metres. That's where humans, uh, there's not enough oxygen for humans to survive. But, yeah, it's a horrible, hostile place to live. Yeah, so this makes this mouse the highest dwelling mammal in the world. And it somehow survives an environment so hostile uh, that this place has been compared to Mars. What's amazing is that we don't know how it manages it. The oxygen levels are really low. The average temperature is minus 15 degrees C. It's incredibly difficult up there. Is the mouse uh, social distancing up there? (laughs) Well, um, there's not much of a population. It's quite a small population. Mm. So in a way, yes. Um, But what's even more impressive is that uh, small animals in general lose heat very easily. So you'd think that these mice would have to eat a huge amount to be able to maintain their body temperature. Um, But that's uh, puzzling scientists because there's really not that much to eat up there. It's 2,000 metres above the nearest green plant. So um, it might be surviving on insects, but we don't really know. Right. And and they're not just migrating up there from more fertile places below. No, it doesn't look like they're just nipping up. Uh, They seem to spend their whole lives up there which is exciting for astrobiologists because the harsh conditions are in some ways similar to Mars. So this uh, remarkable little mouse is really changing our ideas about where mammals can live. Very cool. Okay, as Penny said earlier, science doesn't stop for a lockdown. Uh, You could be forgiven for thinking that because everyone, every scientist seems to have pivoted to COVID-19. But there's lots of other stuff going on and we've picked out a few. Uh, Penny, what have you got? Well, until very recently, human genome studies have focused on data mostly from white people, giving us a really distorted understanding of human genetics and our evolutionary history. Uh, But now the genomes of people from 54 populations around the world have been analysed, giving us much more insight into the complete, the whole human story. 
one of the things that they've now discovered is that there was probably much more mixing between different ancient human populations in Africa than we thought. So rather than seeing a diverging family tree in our early history, there's now evidence for much more gene flow between different populations. So it it would have been more like a intertangled mesh of branches, uh, a shrub, if you will, than a tree. The work has also identified uh, many previously unknown genetic variants, which might have health implications and plenty of other insights, too, um, such as there may have been many humans in the Americas about 15,000 years earlier than we thought. So really interesting there. Uh, What have you got, Graham? Well, in a similar vein, uh, in terms of telling us about our past, uh, archaeologists have discovered uh, complex tools and evidence of art and symbolic behaviour at sites in New Guinea. Uh, These dates were around 5,000 years ago. Now, this is interesting because we know that in Europe and Asia, the development of agriculture spurred the growth of complex cultures as people began living together around farms and forming villages and that kind of things. But we didn't have any evidence of that kind of thing happening in New Guinea. Uh, What it seems to mean is that symbolic culture and sophisticated craftsmanship must have developed independently in New Guinea. So that transition from agriculture to complex culture may be a sort of more general, more widespread human pathway than once thought. It's not just transmitted culturally, but it seems to kind of be an innate thing that humans do. Mm. Rowan, what have you got? Uh, I found this thing that scientists in the US are making running shoes that could boost running speed by 50%. So they've designed a a spring-powered device that would increase the amount of power a person's legs generate while running. So the device stores energy created as the leg bends in the air, compressing the spring and releases it when the runner takes a step. Um, And the designer compares it to a catapult that's pulled up in the air and then released on the ground. And they reckon that if Usain Bolt at his peak ran in this chute, he would increase his top speed from 12.3 metres per second to 20.9 metres per second. I should say the chute doesn't exist yet, uh, but (laughs) they say, yeah, I know, yeah. But they say they're working on a prototype and they they say, yeah, of course, it could be military applications, uh, but also for recreational purposes. Just before we go, I have to mention the finding that penguins vocalise while being underwater. Uh, We know that seals and whales do it, uh, but we didn't know that penguins did it, and we don't know why, but I like that. Me too, that's lovely. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that you can read all about all these stories and much more at newscientist.com. If you would like to subscribe, there is a special offer for podcast listeners only. Get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist, including our full archive and video library of scientific talks, using the code POD20. Yep, POD20 at checkout gets your discount. Do also listen to our sister podcast, The Big Interview. Coming up on Monday, March the 30th, we've got a fantastic interview with climate activist Greta Thunberg. Do get in touch on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com and let us know what you'd like to hear more of on the show. Stay safe, everyone, and stay home as much as you possibly can. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts. Uh, until next time, goodbye. goodbye. Take care. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.